Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. My name is Meredith Smith, and I'm the host of the show today, and I'm thrilled to have two guests on the show with me. And today we're going to explore um, making science accessible and specifically um, looking at the topic of nuclear energy and nuclear waste and um, issues of containment and control around these scientific advancements. And this show uh, is, brings in leading experts in different fields that vary from hard sciences to mathematics to psychology and engineering. And today I'm thrilled to introduce a astronomer and also an award-winning novelist uh, and author. And um, her name is Dr. Jenna Levin. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Levin has her PhD in theoretical physics from MIT, and she's received the Guggenheim Fellowship in 2012, as well as numerous other fellowships for her work. And um, she has many accomplishments. I'll just name a few. And she's um, currently the professor of physics and astronomy at Columbia and is a director of science at the Center on Art and Innovation called Pioneer Works, a innovative place based in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And she specializes in general relativity. She has focused on black holes and chaos theory and explored topics of cosmology of extra dimensions and gravitational waves in the shape of space-time. She's contributed to this field through writing and um, in arts and science in different efforts that we'll explore today, um, such as written essays to accompany art galleries and talks um, for TED and on the Colbert Report. And um, I think I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. And um, also wanted to mention that there's another guest that's going to join us on the show, Kim Wynn. And um, welcome, Kim. Hi. Thank you. Um, and so let's just jump into your background, um, Professor sure. Levin. And can you tell us what drew you into the sciences and particularly into this difficult and daunting field of astrophysics? Yeah. I, I was definitely not uh, what I thought uh, a good candidate for the sciences. When I was a kid, it never crossed my mind that I would be interested in sciences. And I started at Barnard um, as a philosophy major, and I thought I'd do kind of art history or philosophy. I was really into philosophy. <laughs> and uh, some way halfway through, my frustration with wondering what a given philosopher from 300 years ago meant to say drove me nuts. And I thought, there's something wrong with this. There's just something inherently wrong with this. And I, uh, I remember when I first started discovering the way people reacted to uh, the answers to big questions that were scientifically formulated was so fundamentally different. It was either right or wrong. I mean, it might take years to work out, but it was true for all of us. You didn't have to ask Einstein what he meant 
Okay, once he shared the discovery, it was true for all of us. And it could be reinvented by somebody from Bangladesh, somebody on another galaxy, somebody a billion years in the future. And that overwhelmed me, I think, in just the significance of that. And I sort of phased out philosophy and quickly, it was halfway through college, so I made this kind of really aggressive shift to start to study math and physics and astronomy. It was, I don't know, a crazy thing to do. <laughs> it does sound crazy to me. <laughs> it was. I remember my father looking at these books I had suddenly accumulated on, you know, mechanics, electricity, and magnetism, and all of this stuff that I kind of had to plow through to get to the stuff I really wanted to learn. And um, I remember he was like, are you sure you know what you're doing here? Like, what are you doing? And I felt very insecure for a long time, I think. But um, now I love all those subjects, including the introductory elementary subjects, which I, which I teach on a regular basis. I just feel very differently about them now. I see them very differently. And I've heard you give a rundown on relativity in two minutes, explaining oh, E yeah. equals MC squared. So. Oh, yeah, that was great. Um, I mean, it was great that you were there. Um, the, yeah, I have this sort of funny way of thinking about E equals MC squared that took me really years to formulate. But um, the, the idea is really that once Einstein started to think that while we, some people appear to have motion in space, you always have motion in time. You cannot not move forward in time. That even if you think you're sitting still in space, you're still moving. You're just moving in time. And that Einstein realized that you could argue about this. Who's the person who's moving in space? You see someone fly past you. They see you fly past them. You could argue forever about which one of you is standing still and which one of you is moving. And so Einstein realized if there's energy associated with our motion, if I can crash into something and impart energy to it from my motion, there must be energy associated with my motion through time. And he realized uh, that that was what we call our rest energy, E equals mc squared, that there was energy just bound in our rest mass. And that, um, and that that was required to make sense of space and time as one kind of cohesive whole. It's pretty beautiful stuff. I like it with my figures. You know, you get to watch Bob and Alice, my astronauts, flowing through space and time. <laughs> it helps. I hope others get to see that and um, hear your, your talks on, on such topics because you make it very accessible and relevant to the day-to-day, -day, especially for one that doesn't have a science background. Mm -hmm. And this field seems so hard to um, get sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, having this unique perspective from astrophysics, how do you think applied mathematics and uh, cosmology. Mm -hmm. I don't know if these terms should be used sure. exchangeably or not. I mean, they're not interchangeable, but they're complementary terms. Mm. I mean, all of these things come to play. Uh, some people are more on the math side. Some people are more on the observational side. It's a community effort. And we listen to each other. We get excited about things we know are coming up, either because there was a mathematical discovery or an observational one. So there's a lot of communication across various skill sets. Mm. There is no one, one type of physicist, which was also a relief for me when I realized that. Um, that physicists do come in and bring themselves into um, their work and, and best to choose the thing that you're best at. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's made a broad community. Mm. And I'm wondering how you think it, your perspective can be applied to re-envision our day-to-day -day world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. I get caught up in this a lot. Sometimes people say, well, your work in outreach or um, science literacy, and I don't think I'm doing either of those things. Um, I think what I'm doing with science 
when I'm outside of the academic venue is just being part of culture. And I think that's extremely normal and natural. And I don't know why um, I even have to formulate it, but I realize that I do because there's so much resistance to the idea that it's just part of culture. There's this idea that I'm acting as an academic who is coming down from the mountain and conceding uh, to reach out to people. It's not exactly how, I, it's not at all how I see it. Um, my first book I wrote when I was a postdoc, and, and usually you're kind of professor emeritus coming down from the mountain with the great discovery. And I wasn't doing that. I was writing a book as a uh, fresh out of graduate school um, where I didn't know the answer on the very topic I was writing about, and I thought we, we never might know the answer. So it had a very different character. Um, and I, I often think about this. Artists are compelled to make art whether or not anyone sees it. Making the extra step of going out and showing your work in a gallery can be hard, but it's just because art is part of culture is, is an accepted concept. I feel very similarly with science. I will do science even if I never share it with anybody, but I want to be able to step outside and live in the bigger world and, and, uh, and to be part of that culture. Thank you. And... I want to bring in Kim in the conversation, and um, who's doing a lot of interesting work for her doctorate studies around um, this idea that you're bringing up too about human. We are human, um, and so Kim is my colleague um, from. She's at the International Center on Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. That's at Columbia. And Kim, could you give a little um, background on your current work? Hi there. Um, thanks so much, Meredith. Uh, so I am in a doctoral program in critical social and personality psychology, and I'm really interested in exploring gender, social justice, and war trauma. But at the core of it is really this idea of human connection and um, the fact that we are all human and we are all united in some way. And so um, I'm really excited that you take this sort of to me, it's kind of an overwhelming subject, <laughs> anything related to black holes and chaos theory. Just a little Just a tiny bit. <laughs> and you make it, um, so I've seen your TED Talk, and you make it really um, accessible and approachable and not so intimidating. And I'm kind of really curious about, um, with your philosophical background, mm -hmm. it sounds like it makes you sort of um, not quite fearless, but really empowered to really go at it and not necessarily come out with answers, but to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I think there's several levels to that. One, maybe because I didn't view myself as a scientist when I was already, you know, fairly fully formed late teens. So the need to communicate to myself <laughs> the meaning and significance of it was also part of the process that I would have to go through. So um, I often think of why do people think that this particular question, the temperature of a particular atmosphere of a certain kind of stars, is important? And they're sort of sociological flows. Why do I think this other thing is important? So while science itself is objective, one hopes, and true for all of us, the questions that we ask, the reason we decide that they're important, the, the movement we make as a group or as individual scientists is very much guided by a human disposition. And, um, and so I guess I find that crossover that it's required for me when I'm thinking about why am I doing this? Why is this the project that I'm dropping all other projects for? And is it really that important? I talk a lot to grad students and postdocs about what they should be doing and why it's really important and that they should think critically about the difference between trends and things that are really about communing with the larger world and with nature. 
Um, so I think that's why it's natural for me to do that, um, to, to be part of that conversation and why I feel it's so important. Um, also, uh, I just want to share it. It's, it's lonely otherwise. You know, it's kind of this, <laughs> it's strange to be one of a very small number of people that fluently speak this very obscure language. Right. And you want to be able to talk to the other people around you about it. You make it very exciting. And I want to talk about maybe the case of um, containment that you so well frame in this recent talk that, that you hosted at Pioneer Works. And so just for our listeners that don't know about this talk series that you do, it's called uh, Scientific Controversies, and it's a talk series that is at Pioneer Works. And there's been nine now, I believe? Seven. Seven, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm in anticipation for the <laughs> <Right>. next one. <laughs> um, but they are um, really about topics that are maybe that I've read about from textbooks, and I imagine one person that discovered, you know, uh, I don't even know if I can pronounce it correctly, boson. Oh, the uh, Higgs boson. Higgs boson yeah. particle. <laughs> or um, also such topics about going to Mars and and you invite leading scientists in mm -hmm. and experts on the topic to discuss it. Mm -hmm. And um, so the recent one on containment is, is one that's particularly uh, interesting in this conversation about peace and conflict. And so at the Earth Institute, we are guided by the idea that science and technological tools that already exist could be applied to greatly improve conditions for the world's poor in particular, and at the same time preserve the natural systems that support life on Earth. Um, before getting into perhaps the, that topic in particular, um, although go ahead if you want to, I'm wondering <laughs> about your thoughts on this tension between sort of advancement in science and um, controlling the power and knowledge that, that we already have. I think that that's actually a topic I didn't feel we got to enough in the live event, but really moves me when I think about it. Um, one of the reasons I don't think I imagine myself as a scientist is I thought, I thought physicists built bombs and that they um, memorized equations. You know, I, that's what I was taught, right? That's somehow the culture I grew up in. And where does this come from? Now that I've uh, been a theoretical physicist and I know, know so many, they're actually super kind of open, easygoing, kind of strange group of people that are not at all, not at all what you would think of as uh, aggressive in a militaristic way or a nationalistic way. It would be an absolutely bizarre juxtaposition. So how did this happen? How did Einstein in 1905, this 25-year-old guy dreaming about E equals MC squared, open up the gateway to a nuclear bomb? Because it begins in E equals MC squared. It goes from there to fission, which was discovered by Lise Meitner and Otto Hahn and um, these other uh, people in, in Austria and Germany, um, that, uh, that, that E equals MC squared energy could be released in tremendous power. Immediately, they started to realize weaponization was a possibility. And, um, and even some of the theoretical physicists at the time said things like, nobody thought of a way to get quantum mechanics to kill people. That's 1938. By 45, we've dropped a bomb. And um, the only two bombs ever used in, in nuclear warfare, first Hiroshima, then Nagasaki, um, tremendous events, both morally, ethically, so complicated, so complicated. And, uh, and I think physicists were reeling. You know, they were reeling. Like Oppenheimer famously said, um, I have become death, destroyer of worlds. Do you know this quote from mm -hmm. the Bhagavad Gita? It's yeah. his own sort of peculiar, because yeah. he was really a 
deeply intellectual person. He translated it himself. It's his own sort of take on the translation. And Oppenheimer was, uh, they just, the bio came out about him uh, a couple years ago about the American Prometheus, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I haven't seen it. But, you know, there's many, many texts about Oppenheimer who's a very fascinating character. These people did not want the responsibility or the moral implications of what they did. And so if, you know, Einstein writing Roosevelt and saying the Germans are going to get a bomb. I mean, this is a tremendously complicated situation, I think. Um, and so one of the things I don't know how to think about is can you contain ideas? Could Einstein have foreseen in 1905 as a 25-year-old guy working in a patent office that E equals MC squared was going to lead to Nagasaki? And if he could have, which I'm sure he could not have, we, can't, we just can't foresee these things. If he could have, should he not have said it? <laughs> And I just don't think you can control ideas. I don't think ideas are the same as actions. And I don't think, you know, knives are dangerous. Hand-to-hand -hand combat in World War II was brutal. 15 million more people were expected to have been killed in the war um, uh, if the bombs hadn't so aggressively curtailed the end of the war. And so that's ugly, too. <laughs> losing limbs and dying on trenches and being blown up by conventional bomb. It's all ugly. So at what stage, um, at no stage do I believe we squelch ideas. At every stage, I believe we do the kinds of things you're doing in your centers, Kim and Meredith, that you're thinking about how do we uh, have policy and how do we have uh, social progress and how do we you know, advance our ideas enough that we can we can manage what we know. I don't know how you feel about that, Kim. I mean, you're on the other side in some sense of well, right. I mean, I I think about that exact exactly the same. We would never stop advancement because I think Einstein in his lab, it's sort of an artist, you know, and you're exploring new space, and it's it's exciting to sort of um, be just learning, you know, making discoveries, um, but then who has uh, the rights and responsibilities to the knowledge that you are now generating? Um, who's taking it to the next step? And it is political, and it is. Yeah, I mean, our old ideas aren't so great either. Burning coal is not so great, and, um, and deforestation is not so great. So it's not as though by relying on old ideas we're somehow... Uh, a happier, more peaceful, less harmful um, group of people. I mean, maybe, you know, industrialization obviously has had a big impact, but I, I, I just don't think, I think investing our, our concern in the ideas is the wrong place to invest in. Um, but we see some things where occasionally entire groups of people decide to, for ethical reasons, have a moratorium on the development of certain things. There is a moratorium against, maybe it's even stronger than that, cloning human beings, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it's an agreement. Now, it doesn't mean people aren't doing it. I'm sure there are people who are doing it. Um, but there is this sort of agreement not to do this. And there's other things about genetic manipulation that we have agreed not to do. Um, and you can do that as a civilization. Mm -hmm. Have the ideas, but agree not to implement them in ways that we're aware we can't yet handle. 
Right. And this is actually a good moment to talk about the proliferation of nuclear mm-hmm. energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at one of the com- controversial mm-hmm. uh, talks the other uh, week, mm-hmm. and you know it was startling to know that right now we have over 400 some nuclear reactors on the planet and 160 planned, and they are localized in certain countries with you know various power. And so I kind of wanted to ask you about that. Mm-hmm. So nuclear energy is so complicated because we know that there are real problems with current existing technology. Um, waste is a real issue. Now, so, so in the commercial power plants, not the weapons plants run by the government, but in the commercial power plants, they simply have waste on site that they don't know what to do with. And currently, they're, they're using uranium uh, fis- in a fission process to heat water. The water runs turbines. The turbines impart energy to generate electricity. Now, you could also burn coal or oil or other things. It doesn't have to be nuclear fission that's heating the water. Basically, just figure out how to heat the water and you make the electricity. So nuclear energy is one form of doing that. And um, it is the least impactful in terms of putting carbon and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. It's incredibly much better than coal. Um, And the other things that we're doing. Um, But you have this issue of this waste. So right now, only about 4% or so, it's, this might depend on certain things, of the, um, of the nuclear material is usable, and 96% ends up having to be contained somehow. And the best idea uh, on the table is to bury it. <laughs> and this just doesn't, you know, this is alarming. We also know that a lot of nuclear plants have leaked. We know that Fukushima had this disaster, but nowhere near as bad as it could have been. Um, nobody actually died from the radioactive fallout from Fukushima, but but what was about to happen, what almost happened, could have been absolutely catastrophic for Japan. The prime minister of Japan at the time said it would have been an upheaval worse than the war, than the fallout from World War II, and that he just thought, you know, if this had happened, there would be no more Japan. Mm-hmm. We're talking about making entire parts of the world uninhabitable. Now, um, you could look at coal and say, okay, clearly we're destroying through climate change the planet very aggressively, but will we make New York City uninhabitable tomorrow with a coal disaster? So, so this is, oh, the, the point of all of this is that it doesn't mean that we couldn't get better technology. Mm-hmm. To, to think that this, where we are now, which is based on the 1960s, both technology and mentality, is the end of that story is, is foolish. We, we could imagine nuclear energy that is much, much, much safer than what we have now. And, um, and as scientists, we have to be open to that despite the dangers of what we're looking at now. We, we, we can't look at you know, Hiroshima and the waste and look at that and say, look, this is all bad. We must not progress on this front. I think what we're doing in other energy areas is so harmful. And if we look at oil spills and these catastrophic environmental impact of these things, we have to at least ask if we should consider if the technology will get better. At least ask. Maybe it won't. And maybe when we take a cold, hard look, it'll be, we'll, we'll think that's not the way to go. Obviously, much better would be solar and wind and these things where we don't worry about nuclear waste and those hazards and meltdowns and (laughs) human error. Um, But we seem to be far on on those fronts, far away on those Mm -hmm. fronts, and we might need action faster. You went into um, a question I had about, uh, as a scientist, what Mm -hmm. strategies 
you would suggest or, or exist for containment? And also you bring up kind of the role of education and, and policies mm-hmm. in, implicitly, I feel like. Yeah, um, I mean, if you look at things like um, vaccinations, vaccinations were dangerous once. They were. Hundreds of thousands of people died from bad vaccinations. They're not now. And so we can't stop progress because bad things happened. And I don't think that that's helpful for our planet and the predicament we're in. Maybe if we didn't know, maybe if we thought coal burning was great and and we didn't know, then sure, we could just push this out of our minds. But that's not the predicament we're in. You know, the Paris climate talks came back with a call to action and to not allow the planet to go up more than two degrees. A lot of countries wanted 1.5 degrees um, in increased global temperatures. And um, we have to do this. So... So we can't stick our head in the sand, and we have to be willing to consider all viable options and then be able to judge them objectively. Considering how um, sort of dangerous it could be with nuclear energy, um, should we allow it to proliferate anywhere on the planet? How do we Mm -hmm. address that? Well, so... I, I think this is the interesting question. People say things like, look, no one... Uh, very few accidents uh, where people have died are really correlated with with uh, radiation, um, whereas many more have died from coal inhalation or just even from evacuation or, you know, these oil spills or these. But I think what looms large is the potential for catastrophe just seems so much larger with nuclear um, energy. Um, and uh, and I, I think that... It's a tough call. So we look at France, which is getting 80% of their energy nuclear, and then we look at Germany, which has warded it off 100%, wants to go completely nuke-free, but it's burning fossil fuels. So I, I don't know what, that there's a simple answer. I just don't think there's a simple one, one-line answer, and I think that people much more politically savvy than I am have to think about these policies uh, carefully. And to think about sort of the um, peace building element in this. A lot has been said on on this podcast about sustainable peace and this concept of Mm -hmm. sort of long-term peace building. Uh, To focus on this example of containment of nuclear power, how do you see the role of this in peace building and international cooperation? Yeah, I think think that um, it's going to be crucial if nuclear power, nuclear energy proliferates, that we are able to control who who has access to it because the idea that we're going to suddenly find ourselves in a time of complete peace just doesn't seem realistic. So one of the concerns about moving forward with other technology and plants, uh, nuclear power plants, is that one of the recyc- one of the ideas about recycling and making it more energetically favorable when having less waste also involves isolating forms of plutonium that are now weapon grade weapons grade, and, and then there's incredible fear about terrorism, and, and that it's very hard to keep track in these plants because it's uh, of, of the sort of form in which it's in, of how much is, is there and if any of it's missing. <laughs> so, um, so I think you have to take seriously that we don't live in a time of blissful peace, and that might not be a realistic uh, a sort of goal for society, you know, for global civilizations, and so, you know, we have to be worried about the safety of both transportation and on-site radioactive materials. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are the advantages and pitfalls of 
cooperating for collective security. Um, is the international community sort of having the conversation about this? I'm, I'm not sure I know that area that well. Um, Just to uh, mention one thing, yeah. also with this, um, you know, you included the director of the Nuclear Energy Commission. Mm -hmm. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. N Nuclear mm -hmm. Regulatory Commission mm -hmm. um, in the conversation last week. And mm -hmm. this regulatory body was something uh, mm -hmm. Kim and I didn't know exist when we were talking yeah. about, you know, where this yeah. conversation might go. Yeah. And so m maybe even um, organizations like yeah. That. So uh, it's very complicated how these things are regulated, both domestically mm -hmm. and internationally. So weapons facilities are regulated differently than commercial facilities. And, um, and there is this attempt by the government, even though in some sense it's, there's some, been some privatization of nuclear energy, that the government is involved in issuing licenses and things like this. Now, there's a lot of complaints about that, that the licenses are issued for f factories that are old, at 20 years, they're getting extensions in their licenses and technology that's already from the 60s, and that people are unhappy about this, and that the the potential for for leaks and accidents with earthquakes and fires and terrorist attacks and all these things is real. Um, now, internationally, there are obviously some commissions, as we well know from looking at the Iran deal, that that try to have. Um, international cooperation or agreement, but that's really been hard to implement. Mm -hmm. And it's also unclear that that by dropping out of the conversation, which some people feel that the United States has dropped back dramatically in, in the approach to nuclear energy, that by dropping so much out of the conversation why other countries have moved forward, whether we did the right thing, because now we're not leaders in this conversation, other people are thinking of ways of dealing with their waste, and we're not part of it. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not in it anymore in some sense. And um, so I, I just think it's an incredibly complex issue. That's why I don't deal with people. You know, I, <laughs> so I, that was where I wanted to go with this. Yeah, I do not deal with people. I am interested in stuff that happened a billion years ago. If it happened more recently than a billion years, I am just an observer like everybody else. Well, can I um, challenge you, though, on that thinking? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious so much about your work on chaos theory also. Mm -hmm. and. Um, how maybe your understanding in chaos theory can inform or be uh, applied to social systems and mm -hmm. um, social dimensions mm -hmm. in, in peace and conflict. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of room for um, physicists to talk or mathematicians to talk to, to other disciplines. And the funny thing is, is that there's not that many usable structures mathematically. I mean, that's a silly thing to say. There's there's infinite number. But at the same time, you see the same patterns over and over again. So one thing, I, when I once worked on uh, the light left over from the Big Bang and how the universe got a certain pattern of spots in the light left over from the Big Bang, I was looking at work that was done on animal biology and development of embryos and how animals got their spots. And, um, and it's the same mathematical structures. <laughs> Obviously, lots of it, uh, things are different. I'm doing it in curved space-time, different dimensions, things like this. But, but it's the same <laughs> mathematical structures. <laughs> and so there is a way to map these structures. Sometimes there are some that just recur in every branch of applied physics or science that we all sort of know have application everywhere. Chaos theory is, is one of those because it's a way of dealing with large groups of systems where you lose predictability in practice. Not, not 
in actual fact. It's just that in practice, you're unable to keep track of so many things. And it's related, in, in this room, I talk about the temperature of this room, but really it's the collective behavior of a huge number of particles, but I don't track every individual particle. That would be silly. It's much more effective to talk about its temperature. And so chaos theory has, has that quality. It's silly to try to track individual things because we've lost control. It's too complicated, and we wouldn't even understand what we were looking at anyway. So we looked at the collective behavior, and we look at the chaotic group behavior, and that tells us something. Mm. And you would see that in any complex system, presumably. And so it has a nice way of mapping over to other subjects. It's just a matter of someone having the will. <laughs> That's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you you bring about such curiosity in all of these topics. I want to ask so many questions, <laughs> but for the, the sake of time, um, I wanted to just think about the um, influences that have, who has influenced you or what has influenced mm -hmm. you in bringing together different voices on such topics, you know, mm -hmm. um, knowing that you have your own expertise and um, chaos theory, but also the, the recent work that you've done on, on the mathematician Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have such specialized knowledge on certain topics, but you have a great effort and um, a very well-established effort to bring together different people from um, in that same field and that have different perspectives. And wondering if you could tell us about your motivations and uh, influences yeah. on that. So, I mean, it's an interesting question. Sometimes I'm really working just at expert level on my research, and I really want to just find an answer, and we're calculating, and it's, you know, 100 people will read it if I'm lucky, and that would be a hugely successful technical paper. <laughs> um, and other times, I want to be brought outside of that, too, and it expands my world, and it also expands my research. So looking at Alan Turing was outside of my area of expertise. I just kind of became interested in him and fascinated by him and, and got caught up in that, in that storytelling. And being the outsider was great there. Um, and so I feel the same way with these talks, the scientific controversies at Pioneer Works. So for instance, containment, which we've been discussing, was inspired by the exhibit that they have up. So the Hiroshima panels are, is this uh, tremendous uh, series of panels that were painted by uh, two Japanese artists, a husband and wife, who had survived um, the bombing of Hiroshima. And, um, and it's an incredibly powerful exhibit. There's also a part of the show that's devoted in one of the other rooms to Fukushima and a performance artist who, who, um, who does a f photographic series of Fukushima. And so we decided to do containment not out of motivation for my research, which is really surreal and, you know, black holes a billion years ago, but to connect with something now. And um, I loved that challenge, and I was, uh, was honored to be included in extending sort of the walls of the exhibit into a different conversation. And I also like that it's not sort of sci-art. It's not science and art on the same page. It's not that. It's the art is part of culture and the science is part of culture, and they're crashing together with a thin wall between them. <laughs> Beautifully put. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, I encourage our, our listeners to go see the exhibit. Yes, it's up for maybe another week or so, maybe a week and a half. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when it closes. Um, so you say that you, you know, are more comfortable in conversations about two billion years ago. <laughs> but I think um, the conversations that you've generated through the controversial series are um, underlying the sort of um, social activist kind of uh, 
thread. And so I'm wondering if that is something that you think is important to bring to your work. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, part of it might just be the context in which we're doing it, because Pioneer Works is uh, really draws a lot of um, artists who may who might not go to Lincoln Center to see a kind of more formal presentation of a scientific conversation, and and so it's partly our audience too, and it's the energy of our audience. And these are kind of happenings. There, we have pop-up art shows during some of these series. We have a DJ. <laughs> we have a slideshow. We have cocktails. You know, it's very it's, tame. Very tame. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's it's part. Um, the culture that we're steeped in, that we're walking into, and that's why I love doing the series there. And people often ask me, "Will I go? Can you can you come do the series here?" And I sort of think, "No, it has to be a Pioneer Works, at least for now." So that social activism, I think, I'm not intentionally bringing it. I think we're adapting to our audience, which I like. I like that the influence is going both ways. And nice. how do you see potential collaborations at this phase in your work? Well, I still. Um, I'm, I'm still quite solitary in my creative output in a certain sense. So I'm still working very hard in technical problems with black holes. I'll have one grad student, maybe one collaborator, something like that. And I'm just finishing a book, which is obviously a very solitary process. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> sure. So this book is um, about gravitational waves. So it's about the 50-year climb to try to detect the ringing of space-time due to cataclysmic astrophysical events. So let's say two black holes collide or a star explodes and it happens a long time ago, far away in a distant galaxy. <laughs> and we wait all this time for it to come to us. It's literally like a pond ringing. The shape of space-time itself rings. When it gets here, we're gonna have to record it. We're not gonna take a picture of it. It's not light, it's not a telescope. So there's been uh, an experiment under development called LIGO for, for 50 years to try to record space-time ringing. And when it does so, it will play it back to us as sound. Wow. We're going to listen to it on NPR. We're not going to be looking at pictures of it. And um, the first science run uh, for the advanced machine started in September. So I've been writing a book as much about the campaign and the people who, who built the machine and who thought about the initial science as, um, as it is about the science itself. Um, it's not very expository. I don't dwell a lot on exposition. But, um, but that's, yeah, so that's coming out hopefully soon. So it's a nonfiction. Nonfiction, mm -hmm. very much nonfiction. And, um, and then collaboratively, I, I feel I'm collaborating all the time in a subtle way. You know, sometimes people uh, respond to things like containment, and, and it, it really makes me think about what we're doing and why and how to push it further and where to go with it. So I feel like I'm collaborating with everybody who I talk to in some strange sense. Um, Matthew Putman, who's been supporting the Scientific Controversy series and, and in it with me since the beginning, you know, we really challenges me to think beyond what we've been doing and um, to consider what else, you know, how much further we can go. I was actually really curious about something you said earlier today when you um, mentioned that the community in physics is so tiny mm -hmm. and um, most of your work is solitary. And I'm wondering a little bit about, mm -hmm. you know, as a female, what is your experience um, I should have warned you, I, I, I refuse to answer female questions. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll save all of us. Um, if I will only say this. If I do start answering female questions, are the only questions I'll ever answer. Uh -huh. And I really like to talk about science. 
Yeah, it's great. So it's a way of saving myself. Um, well, I'm, you know, and really... And I'll also add that sociologists answer those questions better mm. and less anecdotally. And so there are interesting people, even in the Columbia community and Barnard community, who think a lot about um, gender and science. You would probably give really smart answers to those questions. I'm thinking we have covered a lot of things. Yeah. And I'm so delighted to have had you both on the show. Thank you um, so much. Thank you both for coming in. Um, I think just if, if I could end with one question of mm-hmm. um, what you feel like um, Professor Levin isn't being asked right now that, that should be. Hmm. Um, well, I, you know, I, there's always questions that get neglected because we think they're too hard or they won't be resolved. Um, I think that... I, I don't know. I think that we should all just be asking the questions that we feel motivated to ask. Mm. I, I think the only time I really get concerned about the questions we're asking is when too many people in one group of one aspect, one dimension of the community, when, when too many people are asking the same question is the only time I really become concerned. And so I just, I like when we live in a time when there are lots of fronts. Maybe people argue your area is not important, mine's the most important one, but I don't think we know the answer to that. Um, so, yeah, I can't say a specific question, necessarily. That's a perfect note to end on. I feel <laughs> like your um, work always pushes uh, the boundaries to expand more and bring each person into... Thank you so much. It really means a lot to me. It really does. Sometimes you throw something out there, a book especially, and you don't know where it lands, right? Yeah. So it's really great to hear people are in the conversation. Well, you have yeah. expanded my conversations greatly. I um, have loved going to the Pioneer Works bookstore, too, which I think you've oh, had a hand in. And, oh, um, yeah, I have a shelf. <laughs> yeah. I love all of your books, and I'm not a scientist, but I've gotten into, um, like, Nick Bostrom and, um, nice. yeah, things like that. So, um, anyways, for our, our listeners, I really encourage them to go check out the exhibit also at Pioneer Works, and um, so glad to, to know and connect with your work here at Columbia and, so um, nice. and to have Kim join us. This was Thanks. to be continued. Yes. yes. <laughs> Such an honor. Thank you guys both. Thanks. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. <laughs> <laughs>